Do you see how their perspective um, on life develops or, or helps project where they're going to end up in life? Perspective matters. Um, I don't know if you've done this before, but, but we tend to be creatures of habit. So a lot of times folks will sit here all the time. And I notice, by the way, there's nobody on the front row. That just makes me so lonely. I appreciate you all on the side sitting on the front row. But if you've ever sat on the front row, it gives you a different perspective than sitting over here. You come down here and you say, oh, things are kind of close right there. That's, that's pretty cool. This is a different perspective, isn't it? Y'all are all looking at me like nuts. And if you come sit over here, back here in the back, you get a different perspective. Hey, Angela, there just happens to be a chair there, so I was going to sit right here. So perspective matters, doesn't it? Back here, there's heads you've got to look through. and At least the screen's up high enough that you can see. But perspective matters. So if you, if you want to jack with the preacher, sit in a different place from Sunday to Sunday, and we never know, especially with these lights up here, you know, we never know who's here and who's not. But what I want you to realize today is your perspective helps determine where you end up in life. And perspective is everywhere. It's even, God designed this with this perspective thing. It's even in the animal kingdom. If, how many of you are dog owners? Dog owners. You have a certain perspective. Your dog has a certain perspective. Your dog says, you feed me, you shelter me, you care for me, you love me, you must be God, with lowercase g. You know, your dog's like, you must be king of the universe. How many of you cat people? Cats say, you feed me, you love me, you shelter me, you care for me. I must be a God. I mean, that's, that's the difference in cats and dogs, right? And, and I really think that's why a lot of guys are not cat people because we don't want anybody competing with us for the throne. You know, for not that throne. For the, the throne of being king of the universe. See, my cats are... Well, they're my girls' cats, but my cats are cool cats because they don't know they're cats. They follow me around like dogs, and so I'm like, yes, we can keep them. You know, we won't ship them off and tell you that they just got lost. Um, perspective matters. And anywhere you have two people, you're going to have two different perspectives. Now, let's say that there is an accident. By the way, one of my greatest fears is that you all are not going to be paying attention when you come out of the parking lot someday, and there is going to be a traffic accident. So I, this great fear I have, be aware. But let's say that one of you is not, and you pull out and you, you get hit. You're, not, you're okay, but your car is totaled. Now, if we have ten people out there, you know how many perspectives we're going to have on the wreck? Ten! Any place you have more than one person, you have more than one perspective. And, and it all has to do with perspective. Twenty years ago, um, when I was in, in the middle of the dating scene, actually, it's almost 25 now, that's sad to say. I've been married 17 years. So let's go 25 years ago, back when I was... Uh, dude, I wasn't even in high school then. Let's go 30 years ago, back when I was in high school. Y'all are doing the math. Um, back when I was in high school, in the dating scene, if you had a breakup, how traumatic was that? Oh, I have trouble eating. Oh, I can't sleep. I think about her all the time. My dad told me, I started to say 20 years ago, 30 years ago, dad would go, son, my dad, dude, dad's one of those guys that worked on the cars he's a mechanic he's always outside and so if you wanted nuggets of wisdom Janie has told our kids you need to just sit and listen to Papa because when he's working nuggets of wisdom just flow also weird little songs about fat ladies sitting in the sand I always want to hold her hand he makes up songs and sings these things but if you can get past all of that 
you get these nuggets of wisdom that, that come out of my dad. And dad goes, son, I mean, one time I was just heartbroken. I was heart sick. And he goes, 20 years from now, it's not going to matter. And I'm like, you don't even know. You don't care that I'm hurting, you know. He was right. What's the difference? Because now, you know, I don't even remember dating. I date my wife, but it's not the same. You know, when you have the implied date, of course, some of y'all are there and you're, never mind. That's another talk for another day. But, but I have the implied date, you know, I just say, hey, you want to go do this? Yeah, Janie and I like to date, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you don't know if this person is who you're going to spend the rest of your life with, you know, the, the, the perspective is different than, than it is now. Dad was right. I don't even remember who broke my heart. I don't remember the girls that maybe I hurt them. I don't remember all that. It's all a matter of perspective. And see, the, the, the deal is, I get this question a lot, how come God lets me go through tough stuff? And we're going to look at that when we get into our question series in a few weeks. How come God lets me go through this stuff? Well, there's a bigger picture than just you. And, and God's got a universe to run. And so he's not just going to run every detail of your life because he wants you to grow up and, and be an adult and, and learn. And really, the reason God lets you go through tough stuff is so that when somebody else is coming behind you and they don't know about God, you can tell them, this is how I made it. God carried me through. He's going to carry you through. And you can identify with one another. It all is a matter of perspective. And what I want you to realize today is that God has a different perspective than you and I do. And... Um, God is not bound by time. You and I are. We're very aware of the limited amount of time that we're going to have on this planet. God is not bound by time. Therefore, when God looks at our circumstances, He sees from a different perspective. And I want us to kind of get God's perspective today. That, that video on worship, that was to help you understand worship is not about you. Worship is about God. And if you leave the place you know, not worshiping, that just means you didn't come and give anything. If, if, you, you know, if you talk about the music, then, then that's your problem. If, if you think that the pastor stinks, you may be right, but that's not my problem, that's your problem. Um, you come and you offer something to God, and you gaze at the cross, and even the most boring pastor, and I've, I've been with a few, you can learn something if your heart is right, if you're ready to gaze at the Father and not at yourself. Well, let's look at God's perspective. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this, my thoughts are completely different from yours. Now, I just want you to stop right there and, and I want to ask you, how different are God's thoughts than your thoughts and my thoughts? Completely. Let's, he describes it, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, years ago, we had a, uh, not a camp out, but a cookout for our, our youth. We had a hayride and we were out in the middle of nowhere and, and we had a bonfire, and we roasted wieners and marshmallows. And, and while we're just sitting there, I, it's beautiful outside. You could see the sky, you know, no, no city lights or anything. And I just said, y'all lay back and just look at the sky. And, and I just had him pondering how big the universe is. And about that time, this, this plane comes over. And you can see, you know, just the flashing lights because it's dark out there. You can see the flashing lights. And I said, what's that? That's a jet. And I said, how big do we look to that jet? Oh, we're little bitty. And I said, if you can, if you can kind of begin to grasp that, you can understand how much bigger 
God is than we are and how much more power God has than we have. And God sees the, the, the past, He sees the present, He sees the future. You and I are stuck in the past and the present. We don't have a clue what the future is and, and too often we're looking at the past and we're not moving on from the past. We have this warped perspective. But God has this big picture perspective and it's so much bigger than ours. And, you know, Jesus, just before his death, he had this conversation. I want to show you, uh, try to draw a picture of the difference in perspective that God has. Just before his death on the cross, he's having this conversation, and he says something that's really almost crazy to me. He's, he's talking about, he's about to die on the cross, and here's what he says to the listener. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite um, term for himself talking about he was, he was fully God but fully human at the same time. So he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at the Passion of the Christ. We saw some of those scenes where, where the, the, the actor portraying Christ was beaten with a whip. And, and I watched this over and over and just made me sick to my stomach. And last week when we were watching it, when the whip comes around and gets Jesus in the side and it catches and the, the guard rips it, I don't know if you caught it, but everybody in here went, oh, there was a, an audible gasp at what this character had to go through because it was a representation of what Jesus had to go through. And everybody's just like, oh, that hurts. And it just made us sick. And we saw the blood. And then we saw him on the cross and we thought, my sins did that to him. And Jesus describes that as now the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Glory is not the term I would have used. Had you and I been going on back then and living then and, and seen what was going on, we probably would have said, oh, now is the time for Jesus to suffer the most hideous death and torture known to man. That's what... But Jesus says glory? Well, in Isaiah it says, my thoughts are completely different from yours, said the Lord. How could Jesus describe this torturous... Uh, death as glory, well, he had the big picture in mind. He was seeing beyond the crucifixion to what was to come. That allowed him to have a different perspective. Jesus always seemed to have a different perspective than people around him. One time his followers and, and he were walking along and they see this man who was born blind. They, they knew the story of the man he was born blind and his followers, having a limited perspective, said to him, Jesus, because they said there's only one of two options. They said, Jesus, who was the sinner? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. I mean, to them, if you sinned, you had bad stuff happen to you. And Jesus, having a totally different perspective, says neither one. That caught their attention. Okay, grandparents? Somebody had to sin, and Jesus said no. He, he was born blind that you might see the glory. There's that word again. You might see the glory and the power of God. And, and we don't understand how can somebody have a, a physical limitation and that be for the glory of God. It's because we don't have God's perspective on things. And we've got to remember that He told us, my ways are not your ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You remember Lazarus. Everybody knows the story of Lazarus, the one who, who died and, and was laid in the tomb and Jesus brings him back. Well, Jesus hangs out. He's in the city of Bethany and he gets word that Lazarus, one of his best friends, and, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, he loved these people and he always spent time at their house. Well, Jesus hangs out where he is. He finds out one of your closest friends is, is sick. You need to come right now. What does Jesus do? He hangs out. And I'm sure his followers are going, wow, this is strange. What if we're sick? Is he just going to hang out? And we've seen before in Jesus' life that, that somebody said, 
Jesus, my son is sick. And, and we know from studying that it was 38 miles away. There was a distance of 38 miles. And Jesus said, well, I'll come and heal him. And the guy said, no, 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 I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And Jesus said, okay, your faith has made him well. 38 miles. Jesus had the power just to speak it and Lazarus be made well. Why didn't he do that? I don't know. So Jesus hangs out. Four days later, he gets to the city where Lazarus has died. And, and both Mary and Martha come out at different times and they follow it and they challenge Jesus. If you had been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. You know what, Jesus? He didn't get mad and smack them around. You know what he said? He said, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. There's that term again. How could, how could Lazarus' death be for God's glory? if you believe. And then, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says many believed in him. Which got the greater glory for God? Lazarus being sick and Jesus speaking the words from 38 miles away? Or Lazarus dying, being wrapped up in tomb clothes, laid in a tomb, and Jesus coming? Don't you know it was dramatic? They were going to roll away the stone and, and the sisters are going, it's going to stink, Jesus. He'd been dead a while. Do you understand? Jesus said, roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, God, I'd love to have been there. Lazarus, come forth. The power that he had to raise Lazarus from the dead, many people believed. Jesus knew he had a different perspective because he knew what was going to happen in the future. Time after time, we're given examples of God seeing things differently than we see them. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he made several visits to people. We know we've got in the, in the New Testament, we are, it is described to us how many people. In, in one instance, he appeared to 500 people at the same time, alive from the grave. And he, he visited all of these people. And, um, and there was one instance where, you know, because he wouldn't hang out with them. He would visit with them, and then he'd disappear and visit with them disappear. Well, one time, the disciples are sitting in the upper room where Jesus had met with them. And, and we don't know why, but Peter said... I'm going fishing. Maybe they were bored. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they just needed some distraction. We don't know why. The, the importance is not that they went fishing. The importance is what happens later. They go fishing. All of them go with Peter because he's kind of like the leader of the group. They're hanging out fishing because, you know, it makes sense to me. If you don't know what else to do, go fishing. You know, life becomes clearer when you're fishing. Um, if you try it, you'll understand. So they go fishing and they fish all night and they catch Jack. Now, I don't know if you've ever fished all night. I have and caught nothing. The absolute worst thing is to be coming in on your boat. You know, you're coming up to the, to the boat ramp and you got to back in and you're coming up and the other guy's launching and somebody goes, Catch anything? No. What are you fishing for? None of your business. I mean, fishermen are weird. Number one, we ain't going to tell you the truth, which is always weird to me. I've always told people if I've caught fish or not caught fish. And then if you're catching fish, what'd you fish on? You know, and where'd you fish? And all that. Anyway, nothing worse than not catching anything. And so all of a sudden this dude shows up on the shore and they don't know who it is. And, and he calls out, hey! These are professional fishermen. Not like me who's, you know, weekend sometimes fishermen. These are professional fishermen. Hey, you catch any fish? No. And so, this dude on the shore, they don't recognize him yet. He says, cast your net on the other side of the boat. So they do. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they felt like a failure. And, and I want you to see what happened. They had no idea that this was Jesus. And look what happens. John 21, 6. Then he said, the one on the shore said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get plenty of fish. 
if I'm a professional fisherman and some home chicken's on the shore telling me what to do, I'm like, you need to shut up. But they, they, they did. So they did, and they couldn't draw in the net because there were so many fish in it. How did he know? Well, when, when they pull in 153 fish, so they're chunking out nets. 153 fish, their nets start to break. It's at that moment, John says to Peter, it is the Lord. So it was after they obeyed that they saw it was Jesus. That's, that's real important. Obedience unlocks our ability to see Christ and to feel Christ's power in our lives. So this perspective thing was totally different. The, the disciples thought, dude, we wasted a whole night. Let's go home and go to bed. We, we wasted it. It's a failure. But from Jesus' perspective, they were about to catch more fish than they'd ever caught before. From Jesus' view, the difference between success and failure was the width of a ship. And I can tell you, in your life, from Jesus' view, the difference in success or failure, in His eyes, not in your eyes, in His eyes, is as wide as the word obedience. If you will obey, you will experience God's power. doesn't mean He's going to magically rescue you. doesn't mean that, that my 1987 Honda Civic becomes a 2008 Rolls-Royce. That, 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 I can't find that. I've looked for it. I can't find that promise in here. But it does mean that He will help you through any situation. Now, their perspective changed after they obeyed. Now, here's what I want to do. Y'all have seen time-lapse photography, right? I want to give you some quick time-lapse photography to, to encapsulate two things that God has done. In the Garden of Eden, He created Adam and Eve, and He established what we call the family. He looked down and saw Adam was alone. The only thing in the garden that wasn't good, Adam was alone. So he made woman so that Adam would have someone who corresponded to his needs. So God created the physical family in the Garden of Eden. When Jesus came back, we're going to fast forward, time lapse, all the way till Jesus is born. When Jesus is born, his whole purpose on earth was to establish a different kind of family. You know what family that was? The spiritual family. So you've got the physical family created at the beginning of time, of beginning of earth, and then when Jesus' time on earth, you've got the beginning of the spiritual family. Now Satan has been doing everything he can to, to disrupt the two things that God instituted. Physical family, he wants nothing more than to destroy your family. The way he does that is he isolates men, emotionally, physically, from our wives, from our children. Once he can do that, then he's got your family. And then you're going to affect several generations from then on. Now, the other thing he tries to do is he tries to infiltrate and infect the spiritual family. And the big deal is, from God's perspective, is that the spiritual family outlasts your physical family. Now, the physical family is important. The, the human race does not continue. You know, God, God said to Adam, be fruitful and, and multiply. That means have sexual relations with your wife, have children, and, and multiply, and, and have children and grandchildren, and just, just have a good time. So we don't exist without the physical family. But the spiritual family actually lasts beyond the grave. Now, I want to talk about what a big deal the spiritual family is. From God's perspective, there are several things that you cannot get anywhere else except in your spiritual family. This is what's on your listening guide. Let's run through these. Number one, your spiritual family offers you God's people to live with. God's people to live with. And the other blank is membership. My monitor's jacked up, so I'm going to have to turn around. Um, God wants me to be a, be a member of His family. The, the Bible is very clear. 
that following Christ is, is not just a matter of believing. Remember last week, if you were here, we said there are two things that you must do in order to become a member of God's spiritual family. Believe and receive. And the verse we looked at was John 1.12. It says, Yet to all who received them, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So the two things you have to do to become a spiritual member of God's family is believe, but believing's not enough. You have to receive what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now look at 1 Peter 1.3. He, meaning uh, God, has given us the privilege of being born again so that we are now members of God's own family. He's not, being, he's not talking about being born physically. He's talking about being born spiritually. You have a second birth. It's a spiritual birth, and that's what makes you a member of God's family. Ephesians 2.19. You are members of God's very own family, and you belong in God's household with every other Christian. Now, the other word that I want you to write out next to membership, didn't put a blank there, put this word, belong. God expects you to belong. The founder of the spiritual family expects you to belong to a local church. It's God's idea, and it's God's idea that the church be a family. Now, has anybody got a perfect family? Let me see your hand. Have you got a perfect family? Liar. Yeah, you just... Nobody has a perfect family? Come on. Nobody here has a perfect family. Hmm. Well... <laughs> Neither is there a perfect spiritual family. You know how we learn to love each other? We're around unlovely people. You know how we learn to forgive? We're around people that have hurt us, and we have to forgive them. It's in the context of the spiritual family that we learn how to do um, life. You know, I have, I have two brothers, and I have a sister, and, and holy mackerel, they're not perfect. I am, but they're not. No, if they were here, they'd, they'd start telling stories. That's why they're never invited to speak. Um, but you know what, what keeps us together is there is a bond that's thicker than anything else. I love my brothers. I love my sister. And it's because we're family. And when, when I love my spiritual family the way God wants me to, then, then the way the Bible describes it is love covers a multitude of sins. I've never claimed to you that I do not sin. I sin. I'm a jerk. No amens, please. Um, but if you're loving me the way Christ loves me, then, then you forgive me, and your love covers my jerk quotient, which is pretty high sometimes. Now, here's the deal. We have a family reunion every seven days. Not, not the really jacked up family reunion. I like family reunions. I've got members of my family that will not come because they're going to see that family member and they just can't handle it anymore. Because I just don't... I don't let smart aleck remarks, you know, get under my skin. I've got some uncles. My, my mom was one of eight children. She's the oldest of eight children. I've got some uncles that are smart alecks. And I just give it right back to them. But if you're sensitive in my family, then you're not going to make it. You're not going to like family reunions. We have a family reunion every seven days, right here, and we call it church. But it's not enough, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, it's not enough just to attend. You are not going to become like Christ just coming here and hiding in a crowd. You can worship in a crowd, but you cannot fellowship in a crowd. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Well, here's the deal. Here's one of the amazing benefits of, of belonging to God's family. Belonging helps me face life's problems. But there's more. Number two, God's... Family gives me power, God's power to live on. And the other word is magnify. Now, I want you to see this um, in Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. What does a magnifying glass do? 
It magnifies, hence the name, you dork, you know? Now, when we magnify God, we don't make Him appear bigger as if we could do that. When we magnify God, what it, what it means is we begin to see God for who He is. We see how big God is compared to our problems. If I'm looking at the mountain, just right here at a mountain, I may not get a good perspective. But if I get up on top of the mountain, I have a different perspective. We used to take our college students to a place called Glorieta, New Mexico. Um, it's outside of, of Albuquerque, Santa Fe, and that area. And, and we would walk up to Mount Baldy, and Mount Baldy's about five miles away. And, and it's not that bad a walk until you actually get to Mount Baldy, which is about a mile of, of the trip, the last mile. And I'm telling you, there are places that, that, are, that are almost straight up. And, and if you try to go straight up, you slide back down, and I've done that, and I've gone the zigzag. But I'm telling you this, when you get on top of Mount Baldy, you're sweating, you've, you've drunk all the water, they all tell you, take, take water, you're taking water, you're dying. And you turn around and you see the magnificence of the view. The journey becomes insignificant. And you go, it's the audible gasp. Every time people be up there, you know, and I would take people who hadn't done it before and I'm up there and I'm going, oh, this is awesome. And, and they're, this stinks, you know. And I say, turn around, turn around. And they turn around and they look over the valley because I don't even know how many miles you can see, 25, 30 miles. And everybody goes, oh, wow. Remember the first time you went, Nate? Sorry. Nathan was not in the college group or the youth group. and I think you whined and complained the whole way. Yeah, he, was, he was a little one. He was actually a little bit too young probably to go on the trip, but it was worth it, wasn't it? Well, I wasn't going to say that. Dude, I have never heard someone whine and complain so much as Nate did on that trip. But it was worth it, wasn't it? Yeah, I guess. Okay. Thanks for ruining my illustration. Okay, so worship. Here's, here's the benefit of worship. It helps me focus on God. You and I were created for God's pleasure. So we see in the church, God's perspective, the church, you've got God's people to live with, you've got God's power to live on. Number three, God's principles to live by. And maturity is the last word there. God wants me to grow up. We talked about this last week. He wants me to be a model of His character. And did you know the definition of spiritual maturity is looking like Christ? has nothing to do with how much knowledge you have of the Bible. I know people that can quote a lot of verses that don't look like Jesus. I know people that don't know anything about the Bible that are some of the most pure and loving people I've ever seen. And I would say they were more spiritually mature than those who know a lot. Now look what 1 Timothy 4.12 says. Set an example for believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Do you see anything in there about measuring maturity by your learning? How much you know? No, it's speech. Oh, man, I've got to be careful about my speech. I need to be an example for others. You only believe that part of the Bible that you actually do. Obedience is the key there, and, and that's the last thing. Obedience helps to strengthen my faith. You want to build your spiritual muscles. You begin to obey God even when it doesn't make sense, especially when it doesn't make sense. You find one of God's promises in the Word, and you hold on to that. You live it out regardless of what circumstances say, and you will grow to look more like Christ. But there's another benefit to God's spiritual family. It offers me God's profession to live out, and that's ministry. 
Now, you have a job to do, and we say this in our 101 class. Every person is a minister. Every follower of God has a ministry. You are a 10 in some area. And when we mess up as a church is when we try to have one person doing too many jobs. We've got to have more people doing what you're good at. Whatever you're good at, God has created you that way so that you could do that in the church. Did you know that? It's funny to me because one of the things we have in our 101 class, you fill out this little form, it's all about me, and it's where you've been to church and what you've done. And it says, what do you have expertise at? And some people will say, I'm an expert at nothing. And I, I disagree with that. What are you good at? You should be doing that in the church. You are expected by God to be a member of the spiritual family and, and, and to be a productive member. Um, one of the things that drives me nuts in my family is if Janie says to the kids, do this. And, and if the kids know that I'm within ear distance, they do it. If they don't know, Sometimes I'll hear, and there's a swift retribution. If I'm at my desk, you know, I'll be at my desk, sometimes the door's open in my room, and Janie's in the kitchen, she'll tell the kids, if I hear, I, if I hear any complaints, I'll come walking out the door, and I'll say, excuse me? They didn't know I was in there. It's pretty funny need to get it on video. Because I expect them to obey the first time. Um, and your spiritual father expects you to obey. And you, you want to know what the main thing is? If you're going to be a member of God's family, the purpose of, of spiritual growth is not so that you can sit and get fat spiritually. Your spiritual father wants you to get up off of your spiritual butt and serve. There, there's a contradiction in terms for a... There's no such thing as a non-serving Christian. And we can, we can spend a lot of time on that, but I won't. Let me just show you what God says, Ephesians 2.10. It is God Himself who has made us what we are and given us new lives from Christ. And long ages ago, He planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. Well, here's the benefit of serving in a church. Ministry helps me find my talents. And then there's a fifth benefit of being in a spiritual family. You get God's purpose to live for, and that's a mission. You heard those people in the video. What is your purpose in life? I don't know, have fun. I have, I have a purpose. Oh, I need to drink before I start talking about that because that would give you a real clear perspective on life. God wants me to be a messenger of His love. Look at Acts 20, 24. But life is worth nothing. How much? Nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's mighty kindness and love. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. For God was in Christ, restoring the world to Himself, no longer counting men's sins against them, but blotting them out. This is the wonderful message He has given to us to tell others. We are Christ's what? Ambassadors. We spent some time talking about ambassadors last week. An ambassador is supposed to go on behalf of another country. We are no longer citizens of this country if we are part of God's spiritual fam uh, family. This world is what I mean, not just this country. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of another world. God is using us 
uh, to speak to you. We beg you as though Christ himself were here pleading with you, receive the love he offers you, be reconciled to God. You see, when we get to heaven, there are two things you cannot do in heaven. Sin, so just get rid of that one. But the other thing you can't do in heaven is tell someone about Jesus Christ, a sinner about Jesus Christ, a lost person about Jesus Christ, because they will not be there. And so one of the things God wants us to do is tell others about Christ. And, and when we do, when I tell others about Christ, it gives my life meaning. So here we go. God's people to live with, God's power to live on, God's principles to live by, God's professions to live out, God's purposes to live for. Can you see from God's perspective why the church is a big deal? I don't know, I don't know how we've gotten to the point where church is just kind of something. The church is described as the bride of Christ. All right? If somebody tries to casually date my daughter and jerk my daughter around, I'm going to have a hard time with that. And I'm the type I'll go confront him. Dude, you need to make your intentions clear. If you want to go out with my daughter, okay, but you need to make your intentions clear. Am I clear? We got too many people casually dating the bride of Christ. And when you do that, instead of being an ambassador for Christ, you are an ambassador for Satan. You're an ambassador for hell because what you're actually doing is you're putting a stumbling block up, keeping people from coming into God's spiritual family where they have these benefits that they can't receive anywhere else in this world, and you're promoting the population of hell. From God's perspective, His eternal perspective, there is nothing more important than the local church. And there's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. There's nothing where people have these five benefits. So let's get it right. Now, as we move forward in this church, we're not looking for you to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We're just, we flat out admit it. I'm not going to that church because there's hypocrites there. Yes, there are. And I'm one of them. Come join us because you'll be in good company. We're full of hypocrites. But what we are going to do is when we mess up, we're going to stand up and say, I messed up. Will you forgive me? I, I, I blew it. Will you forgive me? You, you put the ball in their court. Will you forgive me? We're going to be honest about that. We're going to look for progress, not perfection. You see, um, you don't judge the strength of an army by the number of people who eat, who eat in the mess hall. We're not going to judge the success of our church by how many people are in this worship service. You judge an army by how many people go to the front lines and lay it on the line. So we're going to judge the success of our church by how many people are serving in the core. And I will keep doing this until my last breath, keep badgering you to get up and serve. Because I know, not just because... Um, not just because I want the church to function right. You will not ever grow spiritually to where God wants you to grow sitting and soaking and becoming sour. The worship that's, that's the most pure on Sunday mornings happens back there. There are times Janie comes home and she said, all I did for the past 35 minutes was change dirty diapers. That's worship. And it's allowing you. She's serving you and she grows. You know why she's back there? She would love to be in here. 
I would love for her to be. I love it when my wife is around. You know, I always look at her several times during a service. I don't get to do that very often. You want to know why? Because she knows she's a minister and she knows what she's doing back there matters. And she's willing to give up her seat in here so that you can have one. And the way you show that you're growing towards Christ is you give up your seat once a month, twice a month, so that someone else might have the opportunity to be fed and to worship. We got fat Christians all over the place. We need those who will who will push back from the spiritual table and serve. Would you take your registration cards? No, put put that put our statement up there. The last thing, last slide. How are we going to do that? New life exists to reach people who are far from God and help them connect with God and with other people. If we double in size here and we don't help people connect with God and other people, we're failing as a church. And the way we're going to accomplish that is for some of you to say, oh man, I've got to serve. God has saved me and the way I'm going to show Him my gratitude is I'm going to get off my spiritual butt and serve. I said it twice in a service. Because what we do, you know, I talked about the big butt a couple of weeks ago. But, 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 I can't. But, I, I, I've got to do this. But, I've got to do this. But, I've got to do this. I'm tired of those. Get up and serve and watch what that does for your attitude and watch what it does for your spiritual growth. Watch how much you'll look like Christ when you serve and no one's looking. If you'll fill out your cards, on the back, what I want you to do is I want you to think about these five things we talked about. God's people to live with, God's power to live on, God's principles to live by, God's profession to live out, and God's purpose to live for. Is there one of those things that seems to be missing in your life? I've gotten a lot of what's my purpose questions. Maybe you just need to put purpose on the back. Maybe you've not committed to a church, and maybe you need to put God's people is who I need to live with. I need to become a member of a church. Whether it's this one or another one, that's not the issue. It's that you need to be connected. But I want you to think about one of these things that you're not benefiting from and write that on the back of your card. We have two baskets at the back. One is our joy basket. 